From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He's had a front row seat to the caucus chaos. We're joined from Iowa by DU political scientist Seth Maskett. He's writing a book about the 2020 race. And boy, does he have some new fodder. Then presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg calls his health plan practical, says it can pass Congress. We talked health care while he was in Denver over the weekend. Medicare for all doesn't work because about 155 million people in America get their insurance from their employer. They want to keep it. Also ahead, what explains that lovely hush that comes after snowfall? And the story of Deerfield, Colorado, now an endangered place. A community where African-Americans would cooperate with one another in business and civic activities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Given the caucus chaos, you can imagine there have been a lot of four-letter words thrown around, chief among them, Iowa. The lack of results is frustrating for the campaigns, who aren't quite sure where they stand, despite what they may say. It's annoying for their supporters, too. But for political scientist Seth Maskett, this is all grist for the mill. He runs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, and he's in Des Moines finishing a book about the run-up to 2020. Hi, Seth. Hi, thanks for having me on. Sounds like you might have a new chapter to write. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the whole purpose of this book was about um, conflicting narratives coming out of 2016. You know, no one could agree why that election came out as it did, and that makes it harder for the party to reach decisions going forward. Uh, I've got another uh, big fat data point from yesterday. Uh, No one really knows uh, what the lesson coming out of the Iowa caucuses was, at least not yet. All this has made me wonder if Colorado elections officials are thankful that they ditched a presidential caucus and opted for a primary. Um, yeah, I imagine uh, Colorado and a few other states that uh, switched from caucusing um, to primaries over the last few years, uh, I imagine they're breathing a, a sigh of relief right now. I think the, one of the big concerns here is, is not so much that, um, you know, these numbers are bad, but I mean, what, um, what Iowa was doing this year is reporting basically uh, several sets of numbers, basically every stage from the, the, the first set of preferences and then how people realign to later candidates. Um, and it seems like uh, as they've uh, disclosed or at least attempt to calculate those numbers, they've discovered some problems in the process. The, the worry is that previous caucuses may have had these problems as well, but no one knew about them because they weren't looking at all these different sets of numbers. Hmm. So as of now, we haven't seen any results, no definitive answer as to what happened. Lots of talk about this app. Uh, Officials now say that results will be released uh, later today. In any case, um, Iowans have long taken pride in their status as the first test of the presidential race. I have now seen several headlines and columns uh, that say the caucuses in Iowa are dead. Is that talk premature, Seth Mascott? It's a little premature in the sense that, you know, a day or two from now, we'll be talking about something totally differently. Uh, But um, this is a concern. Uh, A lot of states have been moving away from caucuses in recent years, um, uh, you know, for a number of of very legitimate reasons. um, They tend to have lower turnout. It's harder for people to participate in them. Um, And, you know, they're they're probably somewhat less representative of, of the party as a whole. Uh, but Iowa has um, has always 
fought to keep theirs, and theirs has been a somewhat protected status uh, within the parties. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, fire trained at, at that process this year, and there's just, there's just a lot less of a rationale for maintaining it, particularly if it, if it can lead to these kind of problems. I mean, what's fascinating is that from what I've read, Iowa can't just switch to a primary system and keep its first-in-the-nation status, because New Hampshire specifically has dibs on that distinction of first-in-the-nation primary. So this gets a bit complicated. L- let me see that um, Karen Tumulty in the Washington Post quotes an Iowa Democratic Party official as saying the turnout was on pace w- with what they had seen in 2016. Uh, in other words, Tumulty writes, it was mediocre and not reaching the 2008 Obama levels. Uh, her column this morning is headlined, the most important Iowa result is in and Democrats should worry. And that's turnout. Was that your sense? Maybe set the scene where you were last night, what you saw unfold. So, um, yeah, I was uh, observing a a precinct caucus in West Des Moines last night. Um, As I understood it, uh, there was an expectation that turnout would be somewhere 10 to 20 percent higher uh, than it had been in 2016. And the, uh, as I understood, the turnout was actually a little bit lower than it was in 2016 in the end. Hmm. Um, and that seemed to be true of another precinct. I had uh, a precinct caucus I had spoken to someone there about. Um, you know, none of these are, are, I mean, 2016 was certainly competitive. Um, so this isn't necessarily a, um, yeah, a, a devastating outcome. But it, it's, uh, there was a, considering the number of candidates uh, the amount of resources that have been expended, the amount of campaigning that has gone on here, uh, they they were expecting somewhat more. Did you sense the chaos as you observed that caucus? Was was there anger? Was there frustration? Confusion? Honestly, the caucus I observed uh, was not chaotic at all. Oh. I mean, it was um, if if anything, it was quite entertaining. Um, but it was it was fairly efficient. The the there was some intense politicking. I, I've um, observed and participated in a few caucuses in Colorado uh, in the past, but those are never quite as interesting because we usually only have about uh, two candidates remaining by the time it gets to our state. Uh, but here, where there were you know quite a few candidates, um, you saw all you know people line up in different corners of the room and count themselves, and then. Then the politicking begins. Uh, in the precinct caucus where I was, Elizabeth Warren didn't quite reach the level of viability. She needed, uh, I, I believe it was 33 uh, people to, to make her a candidate. She only had something like 30 or 31. And so those people then were basically asking people from other campaigns to loan them people to get them over the, over the limit. Hmm. Uh, when that didn't happen, then they disbanded, and some of them went over to the Klobuchar people, some of them went to the Sanders people, and some of them went to the Yang side. Um, it, it was really quite fascinating, but fairly orderly and uh, uh, very, very spirited and, and surprisingly organized there. I mean, I, um, for the reasons yeah. you've laid out, the caucuses can be problematic, but there's there's also a charm to what you've described there. If you're just joining us, my guest is political scientist Seth Maskett of the University of Denver. He runs the Center on American Politics there, and he joins us from Des Moines. He uh, has been observing the caucuses, writing a book about the run-up to 2020. Um, many of the candidates have already left Iowa, headed for New Hampshire, 
you know, it just strikes me that narrative is so important in contests like this and momentum. And it would appear that heading into New Hampshire, no one has any or maybe they all have it, you know, based on their claims last night. Does this help the the meltdown in Iowa? Does it help candidates like Mike Bloomberg, who we're going to hear from shortly in the show, or Michael Bennett, you know, who didn't put their eggs in the Iowa basket? I, I was saying last night that, you know, basically every candidate can claim that they're in an 11-way tie for first place. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and, and you saw that going on. I mean, when uh, after a few hours of people not having any results to talk about, uh, Amy Klobuchar came out and uh, gave a speech, and then the other candidates followed suit. And there were, more, you know, some of them were more proclaiming victory than, another, than others were, or saying, you know, we, we proved the skeptics wrong and, and using all that soaring rhetoric all without really being able to say anything at all. Yeah. Uh, but basically, that was just a matter of you know, trying to seize some attention, knowing that more people were watching uh, their speeches then than really had probably been watching prior to that. At least you know, they were getting some national attention for their stories. But yeah, everyone's still trying to control the story coming out of Iowa, and we still don't really know what that outcome is. We do know that Michael Bennett from Colorado really is pinning most, if not all, of his hopes on next week's primary in New Hampshire. His team says Bennett has spent more time in that state than any other candidate. Um, I'd like to talk about Super Tuesday, where it's estimated that more than one-third of the country will be voting, uh, with you know, headliners like California and Texas, they're sizable blocks, but Colorado, now a Super Tuesday state, Uh, The primary is open to unaffiliated voters. And uh, when Colorado moved its primary to Super Tuesday, here's what we heard from the governor of the state. By joining the Super Tuesday states, I think we can really highlight Colorado as a key state. Because among the Super Tuesday states, Colorado is one of the only ones that is also a competitive state for November, a purple state. Uh, Seth Maska, do you see evidence so far that Colorado, having joined the Super Tuesday scrum, has raised our importance or our profile? Um, It's hard to say. I mean, there's certainly been some advertising spending. There have been uh, a number of the candidates have visited. I don't know if it's any more than would have happened otherwise. Mm. I mean, it's... uh, you know, it's one thing to join Super Tuesday, but um, you know, Colorado is going to be joining California, Texas, you know, a, a number of other uh, much more delegate-rich states. So it, it's, it's kind of hard to compete in that environment. This has been fascinating. Seth, thanks so much. Certainly. Thanks for having me on. And safe. You're traveling home today? That's the plan, weather okay. providing. Weather providing and no more snafus with technology. Seth Maska joining us from Des Moines. He directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Remember that even though Colorado has a presidential primary, there are still caucuses for non-presidential races. March 7th. It's Primo Real Estate in Denver's Lower Downtown, a former Patagonia store that now serves as billionaire presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg's new campaign office. The place felt like a sauna inside, all the bodies that had packed in to hear Bloomberg speak over the weekend. And once the speechifying and handshakes were over, Bloomberg met with a few local journalists, one at a time, sort of assembly line style, five minutes each. We chose to speak with him about health care, an issue Colorado voters keep telling us matters to them. 
Bloomberg, a former mayor of New York, wants a public option, but balks at Medicare for all. If healthcare is someone's deciding issue, I'd like to ask why your policy is better than the other Democratic candidates in the race. Give me your one-minute elevator pitch. Uh, mine is practical, and we'll get through Congress. Uh, Medicare for all doesn't work because about 155 million people in America get their insurance from their employer. They want to keep it. And the hospitals and the doctors want to make sure that's still there as well because that's what subsidizes the, the people who are getting paid for by Medicaid and Medicare. The government programs pay an awful lot less than the private ones do. And so you have to have this balance or we couldn't afford to possibly give everybody the care that they want. And you have people like the unions who fought very hard for uh, medical benefits and they traded a lot of other things away for it. So they want to make sure that they continue to do that as well. You say that your plan would get through Congress. On Twitter, Justin Kurth of Penrose, Colorado asks, if the U.S. Senate and House remain split, how do you pursue your health care policy? Okay. Uh, in other words, it sounds like you might be building on Obamacare, which is tremendously unpopular among elected Obama Republicans. Obamacare is very unpopular, but they all like the Affordable Care Act which is exactly the same thing. So you've got to be careful with that. And it was like the woman who said, keep your dirty government hands off my Medicare. It's a government program. Uh, look, in New York, I had a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, and I got gay marriage through the Republican Senate. If I can do that, I can get a health care plan through a Republican Senate at a national level. What would you say to folks who are concerned particularly about the cost of health care, keeping that down, and who say this, the current system, or anything resembling it, is failing. Well, the current system is we pay double for health care than the Canadians do, and they have better results. So there is something wrong. There's no question about that. A lot of it is because we've protected the drug industry, not letting the government, Medicare, negotiate with the drug industry. The first thing you'd want to do is change that so we can have a free market. We use the National Institute of Health, which is taxpayer-funded, to help develop drugs, and then those companies sell the same drugs outside of the United States at much lower prices than they sell them inside. It's all because Congress gave them protection. When it comes to health care, you point to your record as mayor of New York, that the uninsured rate in the city fell. You say life expectancy rose, yep. childhood obesity declined. Yep. But you also suffered an important defeat, your ban on jumbo-sized sugary no, no, we drinks. Didn't, we didn't. It didn't get through. But if you go talk to Pepsi and to uh, Coke, they'll say your sales collapsed of those. The public listened. They said, oh, I don't want something with that much sugar. And the Coke and Pepsi switched to selling other kinds of drinks. That's what's happened. What do you say to people who fear a nanny state under a President Bloomberg? I didn't tell anybody what they had to do. What we want to do is tell them what's in there, what, what the health benefits and problems are, and then you make your decisions. I've never recommended banning people smoking. I think if you smoke, you're pretty stupid because you're going to die a lot younger on average. But if you want to smoke, I think you should do that. Nobody tried to take away your, your uh, beverages. We just wanted you to have a smaller cup so maybe you wouldn't have two cups and maybe you would not be as obese as uh, in other places. Take a look at Mexico. Mexico is the most obese country in the world, and it's all because they have Coke and Pepsi priced cheaper than water, and the water they have to buy is bottled water. 
you've come to Colorado several times. What are you? Keep back. I, have to, I ski here. I've been coming here since 1966. What are you hearing from voters when you meet with them about what matters to this state? And, and I wonder if that differs from what you've heard elsewhere in the country. Well, they all want to replace Donald Trump. He's not popular here. Uh, certainly not among the Democratic voters. And they want to uh, find a problem for homelessness and for uh, guns and for health care costs and for uh, all of the same problems, crime. We all have, every city has the same problems. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Democratic presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg, he was in Denver this past weekend to open a campaign office. Some quick clarifications. He said he got gay marriage through the New York legislature. Bloomberg never served in Albany, but he says he was influential in the gay marriage debate as New York City mayor. And about Mexico being the most obese country in the world, probably best the U.S. not throw stones. We're frequently near the top as well. Right after recording that conversation, I tweeted Bloomberg's comment that people want to keep their employer health plan. That was met with some swift response. James Bullington of Denver writes, I am more than happy and willing to give up my great insurance from my employer, great being in quotation marks. Meanwhile, Aaron Smith of Denver says, I don't believe the we want to keep our employer health care arguments. One, I want to keep my coverage no matter where I go. Two, for employers, offering health care is such a burden and a pain. Well, we have invited all the Democratic presidential candidates to talk with us, as well as President Trump or a surrogate. You can find my interviews with Michael Bennett, Bernie Sanders, and Tom Steyer at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with why fresh snowfall brings that lovely hush to the landscape. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With so much happening, it is hard to keep up. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. CPR News is here to be your guide in this busy political season and through election year. We'll continue to bring you special coverage from NPR on the major events. And we'll give context about why it matters for you here in Colorado. Thanks for being with us here on CPR News. Maybe it's because we're in radio, but I'm sure you've noticed this too, the hush that comes when there's snow on the ground. Meteorologist Chris Bianchi of Weather Nation in Centennial writes about weather and science for the Denver Post, and he has some insight into this hush. And Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. appreciate you having me. I wonder, first off, if you have a special affinity for snow over other kinds of precipitation. Absolutely. I mean, snow, I think, is of such high impact to so many different people that, um, you know, weather is one of those things that impacts everyone all the time. And for me, growing up, I grew up initially on the East Coast, um, same impacts out here, of course, as well. But um, anytime it snows, it just seems to be one of those opportunities that there's no technology, there's no fix really for snow. And huh. it's kind of nice in that way. We surrender to snow in many ways, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the big question here, why does snow make everything quieter? What are the sort of physics of this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because after a snowfall, uh, it's one of those things where it's 
maybe a perception in your mind, but really is there is science behind the fact that it is quiet after a snow. And the reason why is that you've got little invisible holes in a snowflake and within snow itself. And those are actually really, those little holes that are microscopic, of course, human eye can't see them, but they're really efficient at absorbing sound. So you get these little sound waves that essentially get trapped within those snow particles, those little nooks and crannies, those little uh, crevices in between a snowflake. And that's why after a snowfall, it's not just your imagination, it really is a thing that there is indeed a quiet after the storm, which I think is pretty fascinating and almost kind of goes to speak to what we were just talking about a second ago, Ryan, where uh, I think it's really nice that after a snow that it just feels like everything uh, comes to a bit of a standstill. Yeah. So it's interesting as you describe this, I think of early radio studios I've been in that have tiles with holes in them. It's the same principle, all of these tiny holes absorbing sound. Yeah, exactly. It's almost... My analogy I've always thought about is kind of like a Jenga game. Like in between those little Jenga blocks, there are little holes in there. And, of course, Jenga's a lot bigger than snowflakes. But, um, you, you know, you've got those little holes that in some cases may be kind of pseudo-invisible, but they're there. And when you've got sound waves, they get trapped in there. And as a result, they are very efficient at absorbing a lot of that sound. So can we say the more snow, the more quiet? Or is it just the fact that if there's any layer... In general, the rule of thumb would be that the drier the snowfall. So there's different kinds of snow. There's, yeah. uh, kids love, for example, the wetter snowfall, the one that makes a better snowball, right? Um, that you'll typically get when the temperature is closer to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But when it's lower than that, when you're talking about, say, a snowfall at 25 degrees or certainly 20 degrees or below, you get a much fluffier snow. And that snowfall is much more efficient at absorbing those sound waves because uh, a lighter snow is, you get these little dendrites, these little snowflakes that um, are a bit fluffier in nature, and that creates more holes for that sound to get stuck in. And in fact, a few days after a snowstorm, what will usually happen is you get this kind of wet snow, right? You get those brown snow piles, but essentially the snow kind of collapses on itself and it reduces those little uh, noise-absorbing little holes in them. And as a result of that, by the time you get to, say, two, three days after a snowstorm, uh, that snow really isn't absorbing much in the way of sound anymore. Okay, fascinating. So you need a drier snow, and it, it that is usually equated with colder temperatures. Correct. Although okay. you can get that snow, you can get with a, a wetter snow, you, you get a similar effect. It's just probably a bit better um, 25, 20 degrees or below, you're going to probably get a snowfall that in general will be better at absorbing sound. Oh, this has been fascinating. Chris, thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Meteorologist Chris Bianchi of Weather Nation, a 24-hour weather channel based in Centennial, Colorado. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. In the early 1900s, a little farming community thrived on the plains east of Denver. There's not much left of Deerfield, Colorado today, just a roadside sign and a few empty sagging buildings. But for a few years, Deerfield embodied the dreams of more than 300 African-American people who'd homesteaded there. 
people were very hopeful and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson of Denver's Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library. She's one of several experts in the new documentary, Remnants of a Dream. Those remnants in Deerfield have long been declared endangered, but just last week, a historic preservation group tweaked that status. Filmmaker Charles Knuckles directed Remnants of a Dream. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. You know, a phrase we heard just there struck me that they really felt like they could get away from oppression. Say more about that, like Deerfield as an oasis. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson believed that a generation beyond emancipation, uh, African-Americans had created religious institutions and educational institutions, but now it was time to develop industrial businesses that would provide employment opportunities. And let me just say that O.T. Jackson was the founder of Deerfield. Yes, he was. Originally from Oxford, Ohio. Uh, he came to Colorado in 1877. He settled in Boulder. He was a caterer, a restaurateur, and eventually um, he became involved in Colorado politics. And he wanted a new economic opportunity, a new kind of future. Yes, he followed the teachings of Booker T. Washington, one of the prominent race leaders at the time, uh, who believed that the, the key was a back-to-the-land movement where the best practices would lie in self-help for blacks, independent self-reliance. And Deerfield was an embodiment of that self-reliance. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson wanted to create a community where African-Americans would cooperate with one another, both in business and civic activities, and create a place where people could have some input and thrive. Because... Uh, Let's face it, blacks were systematically excluded from many of the um, public sector uh, systems created by the white majority. It's very interesting. Just from my Jewish perspective, it sounds very much like the intention behind a kibbutz, this idea of being connected to the land and the community as incredibly tight-knit. And this was a time when nationalist movements were... Um, popular. And and Theodore Herschel created the idea that there ought to be a Jewish state around this same time. And for African Americans, this was the idea that you can empower yourself as a people, that you could really create your own community. So when Deerfield was in its heyday, what was it like for the folks there? Like, what did the community look like? and, And what were the businesses that you'd see? Deerfield thrived for a time from about 1915 to 1920, the zenith of that time really being 1917 to 1920. But there were fairs that would be held in Deerfield, and the governor would come out to award prizes for the most prized fruits and vegetables grown or the best livestock or cattle that was grown. So there were picnics and fishing parties and dancing. There were churches, um, a missionary society. Deerfield was a thriving community. This was a full-time community. This was not like a kind of weekend retreat or something. These were homesteaders. Yeah. So you had to file a land claim 
and you had to prove up that land. Therefore, you had to live on the land for a certain number of time, amount of time. You had to document your improvements. And if you met all the government requirements, you then own that land. So there are descendants perhaps today who still have claim to that land? Do you know? Well, one uh, interesting story, and this is a typical story of the American West and settling the American West is that of the Groves family. And Walker Groves was one of O.T. Jackson's last farmhands, and his sons owned some property in the settlement. But Walker Groves was um, bucking hay one day with a team of mules who ran away from him. And unfortunately, he was um, injured very badly, so badly to the point where he died because he was impaled by the buckrake. And his son uh, refuses to go back to the land that they even owned because, as he puts it, the farm killed my daddy, so I'm never going back to the farm. Oh, my goodness. Just a picture of what life was like at that time. Let's talk about some of the interesting personalities, the notable people who settled along with O.T. Jackson in Deerfield. Who, who stands out? Well, one person that stands out is Dr. Westbrook. Um, Dr. Westbrook was a successful Denver physician. This is Henry Peter Westbrook. That's right. I Dr. Just, Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook. I just learned about him, actually. Isn't this the guy who infiltrated the Klan? He did. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he could have passed for white if he wanted to. So what he would do is he would go to Klan meetings. He would listen to what was being proposed by the Klan and go back and report that to members of the black community. Uh, he was quite an interesting fellow. He was uh, at Denver General Hospital for 17 years. He spoke to religious and civic groups all over Denver about equality. Um, he was really quite a fascinating man, not only because he named Deerfield, but he was one of Denver's most prominent African-American citizens. He had named Deerfield. And is it simply that the fields were dear to them? And that is why it's spelled D-E-A-R yeah. and not D-E-E-R, because the idea was that this was such an important effort to these people that it was something that was special, emotional, even spiritual to many of them. And dear, and dear. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. The filmmaker Charles Knuckles joins us. Uh, his latest documentary is called Remnants of a Dream, and the remnants refer to what remains today of Deerfield, Colorado, this oasis in the early 1900s for African Americans in the state. And I just want to note that the black population was growing fast in those days. So in 1860, uh, in Colorado, it's about 400 people. And by the turn of the century, about 8,000, according to the census. D did they face a lot of discrimination in Colorado? And how did that compare to other parts of the country, would you say? Well, they certainly faced um, some discrimination. Many would argue that it perhaps was not as bad as the kind of discrimination that people would face in the South. Colorado was never a slave state, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination. And it, it, certainly there was enough discrimination. They felt they needed to get away from it. Absolutely. And that was O.T. Jackson never really had the idea that he wanted to create a separate community, but he wanted to create a community where African-Americans could have some input 
with regard to how their lives were governed. But even Jackson would face discrimination as well. Yeah, you talked a little bit about his background. So this is O.T. Jackson, Oliver Toussaint Jackson. Um, He was from Ohio, I think you said. Uh, What drew him to Colorado in the first place? The idea of the promise of the American West is what drove O.T. Jackson to Colorado. A familiar theme for settlers. Absolutely. And he became involved in uh, Democratic Party politics in 1906. And this is a time when many African Americans were Republicans. The Party of Lincoln. The Party of Lincoln, the Party of Emancipation, the Party of Freedom. But Jackson felt as if by getting politically active, he would have better access to government officials and be better empowered to be able to create some of these initiatives that he wanted to. And quite the entrepreneur as well. I mean, beyond Deerfield. Absolutely. Um, Jackson had big ideas. Um, He was someone who first became a caterer. He was a caterer at Chautauqua in Boulder. Um, He managed the the, uh, kitchen facilities there. He owned a couple of restaurants in Boulder. But something that many people may not be aware of was just to the extent of his work in politics. This has been just fascinating for me to learn about. He held a job known as messenger with six different governors for 28 years. He served, you know, both political parties. What was this role, messenger? A gubernatorial messenger conveyed communications, transported documents, and handled confidential and sensitive material, uh, much of which we may do electronically today. But at the turn of the last century, people relied on trusted people to be able to handle these tasks. And Jackson was so well-liked and so trusted that he was reappointed by multiple administrations. But even being that close to state government still did not um, free him from aspects of discrimination. And in one particular Um, story stands out. Yeah, tell me of that. Well, in in 1929, Jackson needed to get some documents to the governor who was staying at the Brown Palace Hotel. And the Brown Palace Hotel, as many people know, is a hotel here in Denver. Yeah, quite fancy, even now. And then it must have just been, you know, a sparkling. Well, Jackson went into the hotel. He went to use the elevators and was told that because he was a black man, he would not be able to use the elevator to deliver the documents he needed to to the governor. Jackson said, yes, I am indeed a black man, but since I am a government official, I've been a taxpayer in Colorado for 42 years, I don't see any reason why I can't use a public elevator in dispatching my duties as messenger. He was still refused. So Jackson walked up four flights of stairs, delivered the documents to the governor, walked back down the four flights of stairs, never to return to the Brown Palace Hotel again. Hmm. And he held these duties at the same time that he's trying to make Deerfield thrive. But we know, just based on seeing what Deerfield is today, that it... It did not persevere. What happened? Well, several things happened. And Deerfield was a dry land farming operation. They did not have access to water. It took money 
to buy water rights. So they started when there was a wet cycle in the Colorado climate. I see. And they could grow anything during that time, during that wet cycle. And they did. They really thrived, really prospered. But once that wet cycle ended, the water dried up. And then you had the rural depression that started in the early 1920s. Most people think of the Great Depression as when the stock market crashed in 1929. But for many rural communities all across America, the depression started in the early 20s. Then you've got the Dust Bowl, right? That, That doesn't help. The Dust Bowl was really the the final, final blow to the colony. I hinted in the introduction that there's new optimism for Deerfield. Preservationists now say there's enough progress being made toward preserving it, that they're sort of tweaking its status. Uh, I know that homes are being built in the area, and uh, we confirmed with a spokesperson for the company doing that work that there are negotiations going on about preservation there. There are negotiations going on to be able to save the town site. And some great work is being done by um, some University of Northern Colorado professors uh, led by Dr. George June and Dr. Bob Brunswick, who are creating archaeological surveys using drones and um, 3D modeling to be able to reconstruct what the buildings were like. Charles, what do you feel when you're out there? Just, we have a few seconds left. Uh, You feel the isolation, just how desolate this area is. It's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to live now. And in 1910, one can only imagine how hard it would be to live there. And the spirit of the people who, who tried. They were among the most determined people you you could find because they wanted to create a better life for themselves and for their children. Charles Knuckles directed Remnants of a Dream, the story of Deerfield, Colorado. Deerfield is on the National Register of Historic Places and on the Endangered Places list, compiled by Colorado Preservation, Inc. You can watch the full film Remnants of a Dream at our website. We've posted it there at CPR.org. A story now about protest, not with chants or picket signs, but through dance. Cindy Brandle Dance Company presents From the Ashes this weekend in Boulder. It's a protest of racism, gender inequality, and homophobia. Choreographer Cindy Brandle joins me from Boulder. And Cindy, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is actually a follow-up work to your 2019 concert called A World on Fire. What put you on the path to creating dance pieces about these heavy issues? What was going on at that time? Um, well, it kind of started back in 2018. Uh, I often create works that deal with human nature and taking issues that I feel are important to us uh, to grow as humans. And in 2018, I was in a grant writing session with my grant writer, Tara, Uh, She had used the words, this world is on fire. Later, I was 
taking a drive from one place to another. And I started to think that is a perfect title. And so I quickly texted her and said, I have to use that. And so we started thinking about all the issues that are plaguing the world. And well, there's far too many, of course, to address in one show. And we decided to make it a trilogy. And so we started with A World on Fire, and we wanted to identify the many issues that are plaguing us and sort of being uh, not very constructive in our world. It's interesting, the imagery of A World on Fire and the subsequent From the Ashes, I'm thinking almost literally now of the fire is in Australia, but I know that you're, you're talking about other kinds of political strife as well. Yeah, I mean, climate change is certainly one of the issues that we're beginning to tackle as well, um, and just the climate of politics. So, ah. I mean, those things together, right? Cl- climates of all kinds. Do you, do you think dance is an effective tool for protest? I mean, you know, compared to grassroots organizing or writing your member right. of Congress? I mean, for me, it is because it's what I do and it's the best way that I know how to communicate my concerns and my fears. And uh, we're also marrying, you know, music and dance for camera films and poetry to bring together, a flesh out a, a more vivid picture. So I think that combined with the choreography is a really important and unique way to express how I'm feeling just to unpack that, you've filmed some dance and that is projected up in the show. And there's this original poetry that plays along with music. In fact, why don't we hear one of the poems in this show from the ashes and have you talk about it? One day I'll show you, show you all, show you that you were wrong to mock, doubt me, make fun. I know that one. I want the one before that. That simple child, the color of cocoa at night. Sea foam of nebula in his soul. That strikes me as being about ridicule, perhaps racism. Talk a little bit about that. It, it That's exactly what it is. And um, that is a, a dear friend of mine, Ramon Gabrieloff Parrish, who is um, a... a Adjunct, not he's not adjunct, sorry, a professor at Naropa University. Um, and it is about being seen only for the color of your skin and then being humiliated by that. But he comes back stronger. And uh, just knowing him the way that I do, he's just a really beautiful person that I love learning from. And so this is the second year that he's contributed uh words to our show. And I think it's poignant. And as a white person, I don't have those experiences that he has. And so just so grateful for him contributing that to our show. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the choreographer from Boulder, Cindy Brandle, joins us from Cindy Brandle Dance Company ahead of the show from the ashes this weekend. Um, you know, we we heard we hear the term protest movements, um, but you're talking about literal movements. What, what is <laughs> what does choreography look like when it's protesting? I mean, describe the bodies in motion in this show. Right. Well, in general, Cindy Brandle Dance Company is a pretty athletic dance company. We like to move big, big movement through space, but also gestural 
movement that can convey the words of the poetry that we are dancing to. And um, so I, it, it's still abstract movement because it's modern dance and we're not trying to uh, sort of mime the huh. things that we're feeling and the things that we're, um, you know, listening to through the poetry. But we're just making beautiful movement that moves along with the rhythm of the words. And I'm just trying to uh, express a way that... Right, to put dance into words is an interesting yeah. challenge. You, you use chairs on the we stage? Do. every se- Like every section of this show has some connection to chairs. What's that? What's that symbol about? Well, I think part of it was the idea of rising and being a little bit higher. And um, also that where the dancers are jumping off of them, they are doing handstands on them, they're using them as partners. Uh, so I think that it's also coming across some sort of obstacle. And then how do you rise out of that obstacle? And that's told, that's sort of the whole premise of the show is how are we rising against all of these issues that are starting to bring us down and be so divisive. You mentioned that you're white, you're a, a straight white woman, and you're trying <laughs> you're trying to capture in in this show the experiences of folks whose lives are very different from your own. And so I understand that you did a lot of collaboration with artists who who live these different kinds of lives. And, you know, recorded some of those, integrate those into the show. Why don't, maybe we can hear a little more of that and then again have you tell us about it. The easier you blend in, the less violence or discrimination or prejudice or racism is likely to happen to you. So, like, 27 years of, of like, collecting, yeah, assimilating yourself to this ideal or these, you know, philosophies of, of who a woman and or a man should be, like, really starts to take a toll on you mentally and emotionally. The idea of fitting in, the idea of not sticking out, huh? Yeah, and that was a really surprising um, statement that Vivian, Vivian Kim, who is the dancer speaking in that, that was a revelation to me that that because she lives her life so vibrantly and I'm just wholly impressed by her as a person that when she said those words I felt like I felt so sad that someone feels like they have to just blend themselves in and not be this vibrant exciting person but 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 then she's she's trying to flip the script on that and and show herself the way that she is and that you know she's a Korean American and but that that's not who she is all the time. You know what I mean? She's um, a talented artist and just a really beautiful person. So for me to hear that when we were having, we call it the conversation, that's the section. And I had asked her and um, Keith Haynes and Bridget Heddens, who all uh, represent some of these marginalized communities, to go into a studio and and have a conversation with me. It was really eye-opening for me to be able to understand what they go through. It's interesting because you said earlier that the movements in this show are very big. Um, You know, I'm picturing arms outstretched. And that is the antithesis of fitting in. That's the antithesis of being small. 
Yes. And and because we really want to show how people rise and and the process of rising. And something that Keith had said during the conversation was that rising is a process. It's an ongoing process in his life. You don't just rise and you stop because that's life, right? We're moving constantly through life and we experience these obstacles, but yet we move through. And so movement is can be large and beautiful and aggressive and athletic, but we also do some small gestural things to to show those those situations where we do feel small and we do huh. feel unheard. We have less than a minute. Is this a political piece, Cindy Brandle? It is, uh, without a doubt. And um, I want people to expand their worldviews and. A question that was asked to me recently was, you know, am I preaching to the choir? Because I'm going to be presenting this in Boulder, which is clearly a progressive place to be. But then I realized that I'm part of the choir and we need to sing louder. And I need to learn just like everybody needs to learn and grow. I love the mixing of the metaphors, the choir, (laughs) the dance company. That's Boulder choreographer Cindy Brandle. Her company performs From the Ashes this weekend at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. That's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're tuned to CPR News.